Hello and thank you for joining us once again for the Football Diary podcast where there is plenty to unpick from an eventful Premier League weekend. And who better to be joined by on, on this fine Monday evening than a Man United fan? Hi Dave, are you feeling any better today? <laughs> I don't know about better. Um, just about coming around to to the facts, what's happened, but yeah. And keen listeners will notice that Dave gave me a bit of stick because I missed a couple of weeks of the podcast when Villa were losing. Notice how Mike isn't here today, so he's probably off licking his wounds somewhere as well. (laughs) There's only one place to start. It's at Anfield, which apparently as a word as a whole just scares Man United these days. That's eight losses at Anfield, is that now, since Jurgen Klopp's been there? And we will, despite our bias, give Liverpool some credit in a moment but it's definitely there's only one place to start really Dave and that's the uh, the unpicking of the bones really isn't it seeing what on earth happened with with Man United so let's let's start our autopsy United have been in great form lately they won their first trophy of the season they knocked out Barcelona in the Europa League things have been going well and then a performance that I've got to be honest I'm struggling to think of a worse one in the post-Ferguson era what, what happened? It's <laughs> a broad question, but that's the only place I can think to start, Dave. What happened? I think uh, I agree with what you're saying. I think that second 45 minutes was ridiculous. I think if you if you're talking about the full 90 minutes, I think there's games when where we've been just as bad. Obviously, last season against Liverpool was it five five nil we lost yeah. against them. Yeah, that that was just terrible from minute one to minute 90. Um. You know this game. It was just I'm kind. I'm obviously I'm very gutted about the result and obviously the scoreline, but also because of it, it's Anfield. I think we scored one goal in the last eight eight fixtures. Yeah, Jesse Anfield, Lingard, which is ridiculous. Mourinho's last game, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was obviously very skeptical going into this game. Um, I, I knew it would be a tough game. A lot of I think there was a, a lot of United fans out there who were quite confident we could potentially get something out of it but I sort of had a bad feeling that we were going to lose this game I didn't think it would pan out the way it did um the first half I didn't think there was a lot in it I thought it was I thought United probably just edged it because we probably had better chances uh, more better chances I think Gakpo's was their first shot on target so um you know it's it was I, I kind of I was a little bit confident I thought we'd respond but there's been games this season when United have started slow out the block second half at the, fo- at the start of each half, actually. Um, and that was the case again. I mean, obviously they went 2-0 up. <sighs> One thing you've got to say is every single goal was almost a self-destruction, really, from United. Yeah, and I do want to kind of highlight that a little bit because for me, the most worrying thing about the whole performance was just how quickly United's heads dropped. We know what Liverpool are capable of. We know what their attacking power is. And yeah, on their day, Liverpool can put goals past anyone. But this United defence, Dave, it felt like it was it was just there for the taking. They were giving goals to Liverpool. And then for me, the worst part about it was it should never have got past, say, 4-0 as good as Liverpool were because you just start doing the basics and just shut shop up. But instead, United gave up. That's the only way I can put it. You, they stopped playing. They they just decided the game was over. And that as a mentality, 
A, it's not what I expect from an Eric Ten Hag side. And B, I definitely don't expect it from a Man United side who are trying to build their reputation back up against one of their fiercest rivals. How much are you worried by less so even the performance, but just the the character that this, the side really lacked in the, that second half? Yeah, and like you say, that's <clears throat> obviously the more exper- experienced players, you, obviously the likes of Martinez, mm. Casemiro, you would kind of expect them to stand up. <clears throat> Casemiro didn't look the player that he's looked of late. Um, I don't know whether there's obviously some fitness issues in there. I was reading a report today, I think, is it Melissa Reddy who works on United yeah. for Sky Sports and she was saying that apparently the last couple of training sessions before, um, after, sorry, following the West Ham game were looked like they lacked zip, they lacked a bit of energy. I don't know if fatigue's pl- um, playing a part in it. I don't want to put that as an excuse, but mm. yeah, like you say, it, 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 it lacked everything that we've seen from United over this last you know, a few months really. Um, every play, the thing is, every player was one out of ten. Yeah, and you can't oh, say well, that. I think you can't that, say that. That's generous for one player in particular, <laughs> and I do kind of want to highlight my doppelganger didn't really have the best weekend, did he? As a left back, Luke Shaw just looked completely lost throughout the game. Now, obviously, we know that Liverpool down the right-hand side have got incredible attacking talent. So it is going to be a a difficult day for any Premier League left-back. But Luke Shaw, he's shown such amazing form this season. What what happened with him in this game? Like, his defensive awareness completely switched off. Why why was that? I think probably the lack of familiarity with the system. I thought it was a bit strange how I started Bruno on that left-hand side. I don't Mm -hmm. think he had the greatest support from Bruno when we were sort of uh, Liverpool were transitioning from defence to attack and we know how they like to make kind of create that overload don't they with their wing backs mm. um, and I think he really struggled with that um, the fact that Salah looked like he probably played I'd say that's probably the best game I've seen Mo Salah play in over a year yeah definitely um, he, he just turned it on he looks like the player that and it seems, sounds daft to say considering he scored 20 goals this season. Yeah, it's um, I was really surprised by that. Yeah. Um, it sounds daft to say, but it was like vintage Mo Salah. Mm. Um, he was turning you know, them inside out and he had such you know joy on that right-hand side. And, you know, I didn't really have an answer to it, but it was, you know, obviously when they went 2-0 up, 3-0 up, I think, was the turning point because there was a couple of moments following after 2-0 you kind of thought, well, we're still in it, you know, forget a goal. And there was a couple of moments when United um, had sort of, obviously Rashford got for on goal, didn't he? I think mm. Alisson made a mistake where Bruno Fernandes didn't make the most of an opportunity, um, where they just didn't, didn't make the most of it. And yeah. you just thought, if they can get a goal, who knows, you know. Um, but as soon as it went to 4-0, every, it, like you say, it just seemed like everyone gave up and that's the worrying thing. And there was just zero structure. And yeah. I just, I don't know, it, it kind of resembled United City. Yeah, it did. All those years ago, 6 1. Yeah. Um, where United went 3 0 down. I think Darren Fletcher scored a header. Mm. Um, and then it almost felt like United thought they could still get something out of the game. So they mm. kind of didn't go gung ho, but they were very open. They were, mm. they were vulnerable to, to counter attacks and. 
once it got to 4-0, 5-0, Liverpool were comfortable. You know, they were just passing the ball around. It was relatively easy. Um, Liverpool were clinical on the day. And the thing for me is I think we saw the very worst of United and we almost saw Liverpool at their best. And mm. that's probably the best I've seen Liverpool play for quite a while. I think the most telling thing for me with the defensive performance was there wasn't one of those goals really that I looked at David De Gea and thought he, he could do better with that. I just I just felt like they was he was so vulnerable all game for any chance Liverpool got. No one seemed to be get, able to get anywhere near their man. The third goal, I think it was, Gakpo's second one. I mean, even the fact that I have to say I think because you lose track of which goal was which, that says all you need to really. But watching Lissandro Martinez move out onto the left wing to try, uh, well, into the left-back role to try and cover Salah and watching Shaw completely forget he was on a football pitch was bizarre. You could see Gakpo running in behind him from 40 yards away, watching it at home. And Shaw just seemed completely unaware that a man was coming. He didn't know what position he was in. Now, let's not forget, this is a player that's played centre-back a couple of times for United. So drifting infield shouldn't be that isolating for him. But United just didn't seem to even be alert going back. It was like they expected to be on the front foot the entire game. So when Liverpool hit them with an attack, they didn't really have an answer to it. Now, the one caveat I have is a lot of what I've heard is the players were disgraceful. They are the problem. No blame lies at Ten Hag for the way he's set up. It's all on the players. Now, I agree to a degree that those players should be ashamed of the performance they put in. That's the, the, the plain and simple way of looking at it. Bruno Fernandes and his antics were embarrassing. I'm sure you've got your own thoughts on that, Dave, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The defence was shocking. I look at it, and I saw so many flaws in the way United set up. And tactically, I thought United went wrong in so many areas. I wonder what your take was when you saw the lineup and when you saw the way they were trying to play against Liverpool. What did you make of it originally, Dave? Well, it was hard to say how they were. Like, you look at that lineup and you wouldn't think Bruno would be operating on that left hand side. No. You wouldn't have thought that would be kind of how they would play. Mm. Um, you'd kind of expect Rashford to operate on that left hand side. I mean, there was so much talk before the game of how Trent was going to play against, you know, and contain Rashford, and we didn't even see it. No. It was. It was, you know, Rashford on the shoulder, pretty much of the centre-backs for majority of the game. And to be fair to him, he did he did have opportunities. You know, there was obviously that moment where he miskicked, didn't he? And he got on, on the end of a really good Luke Shaw ball in the first mm. half. But, uh, yeah, it was it was strange, the setup. Wegos just didn't have any effect at all. You know, he didn't lack any effort, you know, plenty of running around. But quality, just lack quality, Um lacked an effect on the game so I was quite quite confused and it, it, at the end kind of Garnacho came on in the second half and the first opportunity he pretty much got a chance to run at Trent Alexander-Arnold well, he got past him and Trent got yellow carded so you were sort yeah. of like well, I don't <laughs> you know it seemed like a bit of a, a strange one for me a bit of a gamble that didn't pay off um, I mean Ten Hag must have spotted you know some things within that Liverpool back line and thought there was, you know, it was something he was trying to implement. And It felt it too just... late, though, for what he'd yeah. spotted. Because it seemed to me that his game plan was, Liverpool's defence has been vulnerable, let's attack the middle of it. But Van Dijk and Canate are back now. It's not mm. the, the reserve centre-backs. Like, Joe Gomez wasn't playing, for example. I, I thought United's <laughs> attacking setup was bizarre, and I thought that 
it was what invited Liverpool to, to counter them so effectively. Because actually, what they did was they had that front three of Fernandes, Rashford and Anthony. I couldn't tell you what position Veghorst played in that game, to be honest. And even Bruno on the left and Anthony on the right came infield loads. Now, all that does is play to Liverpool's strengths because then you're putting men on Van Dijk and Canate, who are much stronger, much better in the air than any of those three players are going to be. They're quick enough to keep up with you and they're defensively intelligent. What you also do is, if Anthony drops into the middle and plays on Van Dijk, you've left Robertson completely free on a counter. Or the other way around. If Bruno drops in on Canate, you've left Trent Alexander-Arnold free on a counter. And that's what kept happening. They kept lumping balls over the top towards Rashford. Van Dijk was winning a header to his fullback. And then they were progressing with the ball so much quicker than United were ever able to. In the first half, you're right, there were some small threats. I thought Anthony was really threatening in the first half. I thought he played particularly well. And then in the second half, Liverpool just invited that. They wanted that to keep happening. And I was really surprised at how long it took Ten Hag to change that. I thought the other mistake really was playing Dallow because you know that Liverpool are going to push their wingers high. You know the fullbacks are going to push high. And I think he thought if I send Dallow on, he'll attack high and that will keep them further back. That's never going to work when you've got the pace of Liverpool's wingers. Really, you need Wan-Bissaka, who is a more defensive fullback, just to contain whoever was on that left-hand side and to mark Nunes a bit more. I just thought he got loads wrong. Veghorst was the wrong player. Sancho should have probably been in there. If you were determined to play Rashford down the middle, then put Sancho on the wing and test Trent. We've seen it work for so many teams this season. And they didn't do it, like you say. I thought it was a bizarre selection. Yeah, I think if you're playing, like you say, if you're playing Rashford up front, Mm. Um, and kind of playing them on the shoulder of a centre back. I would have personally. I thought I wasn't as concerned about that right hand side with Trent going forward. Obviously, you got Salah though. Obviously, mm. had a brilliant game. But actually, I don't think Trent got forward as much as Robertson did on the other side. Mm. Um, so why not have Garnacho on that left hand side to pin him back yeah. and think about the threat that's coming in behind because you know he's relentless. Like. He'll just run all day, run run at his, uh, his fullback all day long. Mm. And that would have at least given it them in the back of their mind that he's running in behind. Whereas you don't have that with Bruno, Bruno Fernandes. Yeah. It, was, it, just, it was a strange one for me. What did you um, make of Bruno Fernandes while you mentioned him? Oh, it's... To have, have him as your captain and obviously him displaying those sort of behaviours on the pitch, it's, you know, it doesn't inspire uh, your teammates around you it doesn't obviously it's it doesn't show himself in, in a glowing light and the fans just don't want to see it you know especially sort of like diving around on the pitch pretending you've been hit in the face when you've not it's shocking it's just yeah it's infuriating you don't like to see it when you know it's on the opposite team you can't you can't make a case for it um when it's on your own team you can't i can't remonstrate it so Mm. It's yeah. I just don't want to see it, and I'm sure Ten Hag will probably have a word with him about it. Whether he changes or not is another thing. But um, yeah, infuriating for me. Well, as easy as it would be to spend this whole podcast talking about what <laughs> went wrong with United, and we've we've managed to do that for longer than I think either of us intended to. Now we've got to do the the hard part, Dave. We've got to give Liverpool <laughs> give, give Liverpool some immense credit because. 
just as United set up poorly, I thought Liverpool set up incredibly well. They were really aware that United's strength and, and probably their own weakness came in the middle of the park in that midfield. So they bypassed that. You didn't have to worry about how good Casemiro was because you just kept the ball out wide. And Liverpool made the pitch just seem massive at times, didn't they? Because they spread the play so effectively. They played balls from deep that were a lot more effective over the top. They were willing to get players to the byline. I thought they were excellent in the way that they attacked Man United, particularly in the second half, of course. But they smelt blood, didn't they? What did you make of Liverpool? Like, Without trying to bring it back to how poor United were... How successful were Liverpool in this game? Yeah, like you mentioned there, I think it is quite interesting. They're, I mean, they are quite renowned, obviously, the amount of diagonal balls they play, obviously kind of stretching play um, with their fullbacks pushing right up the pitch. And that was definitely something they clearly focused on, like you mentioned. But they did kind of expose the space on the pitch when they had the opportunity to. Um and it was quite noticeable. You saw kind of in the first half, especially Gakpo was kind of dropping in to those mm-hmm. holes and they were playing the ball into him and he was um, keeping hold of the ball quite well. Um, and yeah, I, I do think the first half was quite cagey from both teams. Mm-hmm. I think there was there were opportunities there for both teams. I just don't think they kind of um, were able to take advantage of of moments in the game where they probably should have been a little bit more daring, a little bit more attacking. But yeah, Liverpool for just every every man really, and I thought I thought it was quite interesting that they played Harvey Elliott. I thought he had a very good game as well because um, Bacetich has has started a lot of games recently, hasn't he, for Liverpool and mm. really impressed. But I think they probably just went wanted to go for a bit of experience, um, and which is sounds, sounds daft yeah. considering how, how young he is. But he's obviously it's got true. a lot a lot more big big game experience than mm-hmm. than than uh, Tich. So. Yeah, I, th- I think for me as well, I th- you've got to give a, give credit to how clinical they were. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I um, think they had eight shots on target in the game and they've scored I- seven goals. They were, or something along those lines. We've not seen, as good as he has been in many areas, we've not seen someone like Nunes necessarily always be clinical, but he looked so up for it in this game. Mm-hmm. And Gakpo, I thought, started the game really slowly and then just grew into the occasion, didn't he? It's finished for his second goal. As easy as, as Luke Shaw made it for him to find the space. To have that sort of calmness in quite a big game early in his Liverpool mm-hmm. career when questions are being asked, I thought it was excellent. I thought that their front three was so clinical, definitely. No, that, that finish couldn't have been executed any better. It was no. right in the inside inside of the post, wasn't it? Mm. Um, but I think one thing I will highlight is just it felt for me when watching this game the amount of challenges that were made and then the ball bounced and fell to Liverpool. I'll put that down to Liverpool being far more committed in the challenge. Yeah. It just felt as though United were just so just so lethargic, lethargic, and just yeah. you know rather than going through. I know, obviously, you don't see a lot, a lot of players these days go through the challenge and through their man. Mm. But it was almost there was no aggression put into the challenges from United's half, and Liverpool were just more at it in that in those terms. They were coming out and in the end of challenges, picking up fifty fifties, second balls. Mm. They were just so much better in that regard. And I've, you've got to give them a lot of credit, really, because they were probably the team really that were probably on more under more pressure coming into this game. Yeah, and actually, with their recent form in the Premier League, take the Real Madrid game aside, they've put themselves right back into the conversation for top four. And actually, with the momentum that they've got, 
I think I wrote them off a few podcasts ago and said, no, 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 I don't think they'll get anywhere near it. That They look a certainty for me now all of a sudden. I don't really know how that's happened so quietly over the last few weeks, but you imagine they will retain their place in the Champions League next year now, right? Yeah, they're obviously definitely on the rise. And don't get me wrong, there's been a lot of inconsistency amongst all of the top four contenders this season, barring obviously the top two, but the likes of Tottenham. If you don't know what you're going to get from them most weeks, I do feel as though there are going to be some surprise results still. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I think they've still be... got to play Arsenal and City, haven't they? They've still got to play Arsenal, City. I think they've got to play Chelsea as... again as well. Meh. Um, well, which you'd... <laughs> it sounds ridiculous now because you know how out of sorts Chelsea are, but it could it be wasn't... a tricky game. It wasn't long ago that they were neck and neck in the league and it's shown what a, a successful January can really do and like how you can kick on in that new year after the World Cup that all of a sudden they look miles apart, these two sides. A bit of credit then for two players in, in particular and then we'll move on from this game and put you out of your misery. First of all, Mo Salah is now Liverpool's leading goal scorer in Premier League history. A, a phenomenal achievement. Now, a club with... A lot of icons, a lot of legends, people that have achieved great things at Liverpool. Salah must rank among the best of them right now, though, surely. I think because it's a modern player, it's easy to think that maybe your bias is getting in the way to go, oh, yeah, he's the best I've seen, so therefore he's the best. But think about the success Liverpool have had over recent years. They've won the Premier League with him in the team. They've won the Champions League with him in the team. Where does Salah rank amongst all-time greats in not just Liverpool's history, but the Premier League now? Do we have to consider him right at the top? Oh, yeah, 100%. I think in terms of, if you look at consistency as well, over the last few seasons, obviously the amount of goals that he's scored consistently. Is it six um, seasons I, in a row he's broken 20 goals now? Yeah, I know you get a lot of play- I know you get a lot of people still, um, myself included, who say, Oh, I think Suarez was a better player, you know, at his pomp. You got obviously Fernando Torres, even though it was short-lived, was ridiculous. But I think those were in periods where Liverpool's team definitely wasn't anywhere near as good as what it is now. Mm. Um, so it was easy to kind of highlight those players and be like, oh, I remember how good they were because they just stood out so much. Whereas in that team that he's in now, there's so many good players in there. You know, you can name three or four players, but he has real, really been the standout player, along yeah. with, you know, probably Sadio Mane, who's obviously now left. Um, so you've you've got to give him give him so much credit. And like you mentioned, it's it's not easy to do. But the the few seasons ago, was it where he scored over forty goals in a season? And Ridiculous. you thought, and there was conversation of him, you know, saying, "Oh, is he as good as Ronaldo and, and Messi? Is he on their level?" And I think for that season, he was. I think he was so good. Hmm. And then the other player I just wanted to give a quick mention to, it's been announced then that uh, Roberto Firmino will leave Liverpool at the end of the season. Another great servant at the club who's enjoyed just as much success in terms of trophy haul as Salah. Where does he go next? Because I actually wonder if there are many squads in the Premier League that he doesn't improve. What do you think is his next stage? Can you see him elsewhere in England? Or do you think he'll go abroad again? What do you think of, of his next stage in his career? I can't say I can't see him staying in England. I think he'll go back abroad, um, maybe even back to Brazil potentially. Too early um, for that. I think he's still got so much to offer. Yeah, I, I, he has got a lot to offer, and 
I'm sure he just wants to play games more than anything because obviously yeah. he really has kind of lacked minutes um, of late. And I think it's easy to forget how good a player he has been. And I think he's taken for granted in some instances um, by by Liverpool, Liverpool fans. And I think that's ridiculous to say, but it's just how well they have played over the last few years and kind of the embarrassment of riches that they've got up front now, mm. um, where he is kind of surplus to requirements, which sounds ridiculous, but... Mm. I just think they've got too many forward options now where he's probably better going elsewhere and making the most of, you know, the rest of his career that he's got. Is he 30, 31 now? 31 he must be, I think. Yeah, so... I'll tell you what, it's ambitious. I'd take him. <laughs> I think he'd be brilliant for us. Him alongside Ali Watkins, that'd be amazing. He's done my head in during the Premier League. I hate the little no-look finishes and stuff like that, but he's a phenomenal player. Right, I think before the podcast to let people behind the curtain a little bit, we talked about let's let's not <laughs> dwell on the United Liverpool game for too long and talk for twenty minutes. Well, we managed twenty four, so I think it's about time we move on and let's look back at the top of the table where it was close. It looked like they might drop points again, but Arsenal they had the fight in them to to get back into a game. Three two winners over Bournemouth. They went behind. After nine seconds, which was phenomenal. And we'll talk about that goal in a second. Then it was 2-0. But the strength of character in this Arsenal side, something that has been held against them for many years, it felt like. Now they have it. And they, with the last kick of the game, almost as if they conceded with the first and scored with the last, they make sure that they keep their five-point gap at the top of the table. What did you make of Arsenal's resilience? Let's start with that, Dave. We'll give Bournemouth some credit for what they did do, but three goals for Arsenal when they really needed them. What did you make of their performance? Yeah, I mean, when Bournemouth... Did did Bournemouth score that second goal too early? Probably. <laughs> um, the first one was quite early. I don't know about the second. <laughs> <laughs> oh, both of them, arguably. Um, yeah, I mean... Let's not discount Arsenal. The way, obviously, they played this season is unbelievable. But I think just to have that character to to actually turn it around time and time again. And it's how many times have they done it this season? Mm. You know, it's no surprise now that they're doing this. And I think that's why people aren't writing them off. And it's getting to it almost has a little bit of an air of that Liverpool season when Liverpool won the league. How many mm. times did Liverpool score late goals in that season? And mm. it's, it's got a very familiar feeling for me. Mm. Um but just how players are standing up and the whole squad are actually contributing. Reese Nelson coming in. Oh, brilliant goal. Impact. I'll be honest, I'm really happy about that because I've been saying for so long, Reese Nelson's a baller. I, I can see him doing something in the Premier League still. We've never seen enough of it. And I actually think whenever he's been called on this season, we've seen something from him. And it's a great option for Arsenal to have off the bench in particular. But I think it was interesting for me because I thought both goals that Bournemouth scored were really sloppy defending by Arsenal. And we've seen that in a few games recently. Saliba's not necessarily looked the same player since the World Cup. And I thought he was he was left ball watching with the first goal. Thomas Partey completely let his man go at the corner for the second goal. But that redemption arc was there. Partey scored his goal and, and, and made a due. And then I loved, after the third goal went in, Saliba lost his mind so much that he didn't even run off and celebrate with Nelson. He ran off on his own and looked like he was going to take his shirt off. He was just so excited. (laughs) But that commitment and that team energy and that positivity is something that Arteta has done really well to build. 
can that last the rest of the season, Dave? Do you worry about the defensive fragility or do you think that their attacking spirit and that unity that they've got is is enough to see them over the line now in, in what is becoming a bit more of a tight title race? I mean, to be honest, the squad is providing them with you know so much sort of strength and endurance, it feels like, at the minute. I think Trossard injury is probably a bit of a concern. I don't know how serious mm. that is. Um, but like I say everyone's contributing and every game now you are kind of expecting them to get a result which is that's the kind of confidence that I think that they have going into every game I don't think they should get carried away because there's still a lot of difficult games coming up I think they've still got to play Liverpool they've still got to play City again Mm. Um, so uh, there's a lot ahead of them and I know there's the likes of Paul Merson saying if they win the next three games, they've won the league, which I think is a ridiculous statement to make. If you, if you honestly, and if can you imagine hearing that? As an, can you imagine hearing that though, as a, as a as an Arsenal fan? That's not the sort of thoughts you want to be, ha- you know, being in players players' heads at the end of the day because you don't want to be getting ahead of yourself. The thing is, I don't necessarily agree with that statement, but if they win the next three games, they should win the league. If if they dropped it now, they would be kicking themselves for a really long time because this would never have been their target at the start of the season. But the position that they found themselves in, particularly at the halfway point, they have to, they have to, surely. I think the fans almost feel like they've already done it in some ways and this apprehension that, oh, will we get it over the line? The way they've enjoyed this season feels like a title win in itself in many ways. And they deserve that that kind of happiness that they're getting from, from some of these performances. But at the end of the season, you want the trophy. And Arsenal have to do it now, surely. They need to be careful of these games that they're going two goals behind in, though. Because, because one of the games, they're going to find a much <clears throat> tougher defensive unit than Bournemouth were able to put up, sadly. I, the Bournemouth goals, what did you think? The, the first goal... An amazing routine because it was clearly very well worked. They knew exactly what to do. And I'm actually surprised that more teams don't do this because he just ran at the defender straight away from kickoff, tested whether he was awake and it, it worked, didn't it? Do you think that's something that, that Bournemouth can build some confidence from at least, that they did get two goals against the team at the top? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think, they've, you know, let's be honest, they're not blessed with goals all around the team, are they? Mm. Bournemouth, it's probably actually one of their weaknesses. Um, they probably don't score enough goals. Um, they've got a lot of players in there that I would say you could argue that they're probably some of them are championship quality, not quite Premier League quality. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for me, yeah, that obviously they've been working on that uh, routine and training and look, probably potentially looking at how Arsenal set up at the start of the beginning of the games and looking mm-hmm. at, you know, opportunities that they can kind of exploit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean... Bournemouth for me, a, a, a similar sort of team as I would put them in the same boat as Forest. I think they'd just be very grateful to stay up this season. Mm. Um, I, th- I do feel as though I feel like they're probably like one of the favourites to go down. Yeah, but uh, I just find it's so difficult to say because I think there's so many teams down there that are probably not good enough for this league. Yeah. And that's what makes it in, that's what makes it interesting because there's so many teams down there that are not good enough. There's only three that can go down. There's not six that can go down if there's six that are you know really bad. So, um, but yeah, I, I think Gary O'Neill. I think he's doing a really good job. 
Um, and you actually, I listened to him um, after the previous game, and obviously he's saying all the right things. Obviously, can only focus on um, the next game. They obviously kind of take uh, take apart sort of the game out and analyze it after the game, and they go through it together as a team. And they look at the next one of what, which you know, what opportunities are there, what weaknesses are to exploit in next team. So he's obviously a very clued up guy in how he approaches games. Um, and he's come from really good, a really good background as well. Um, in his ability to be able to do that, I, I, I think he's a, good, a promising manager. I really do. But I just, I, I just hope he's given the opportunity if they do go down that he stays at Bournemouth next season. It's definitely a tough job on his hands to keep them up, and he's not the only one with that tough job of trying to keep a side in the Premier League that maybe aren't good enough for it. I want to look at Everton, Nottingham Forest then. We offered some praise to Nottingham Forest on the podcast recently because we've seen some really good things from them, and I actually thought that continued in this game to a degree. But Everton, it's been a little while since we talked about them. Sean Dyche is six games in now. They obviously got that landmark win in his first game against Arsenal. They beat Leeds 1-0 as well. But they've only got seven points from those six games. And Everton can't really afford to be dropping as many points as they, they have been with the position they're in. Now, you mentioned a minute ago that there's quite a few teams down at the bottom of the league that aren't good enough for the Premier League. Have you seen enough from Sean Dyche's Everton so far to think that they are good enough to remain in the league this season? <laughs> oh, um, That's the question on everyone's lips, isn't it? I think... One thing I do see about Everton, especially since he's come in, they definitely have got a lot more steel about than Everton have. Um, it's definitely been shown in dribs and drabs. I mean, you look at the Leeds game. Um, I do feel as though Calvert-Lewin is a massive miss for them. Yeah, he's, he's such a big miss. If you look in that first game they played against Arsenal, he had a brilliant game. Like he's provides so much to their all-round game and being able to hold the ball up in that final third. Yeah. Just kind of providing, you know, with the, the runners that are able to kind of get up the pitch a lot mm. easier. And they really do lack that striker at the minute. Um, it, it seems as though Sean Dyche has already decided that Mopé is not good enough. He gave Josh Sims an opportunity against Liverpool. I thought that was the wrong thing to do. I thought, yeah, wrong game. I thought it's just he just hasn't got the experience. He, as good as he has been at Sunderland this season, Josh Sims. Um, Could you I, play I just, both? I wonder if they would both work together. Sean Dice played four four two at Burnley before. Yeah. He's got similar players to, to that system. I wonder if you're struggling for goals, play two up front. I just think he's probably a little bit um, reluctant to take him one of those midfielders out. I think yeah. he, especially since the core rate has come to that midfield, he's actually done really well. Yeah. Um, and I think he definitely does provide, he looked threatening in this game, had a couple of opportunities. Um, so I think he's a little bit reluctant to take a midfielder out because I think that he'll, he feels as though that will probably weaken them somewhat and probably they'll have less of the ball, which is kind of understandable. But if you're not scoring um, goals, what's the point in having the ball? Everton are in a position where they can't draw a game. They need to start picking up three points in a game. Against Arsenal in their last game, when they lost 4-0, there was just absolutely no threat about them at all. In this game, it took a clumsy challenge from Shelby to get them off the board. I just think that Sean Dyche and his organisation will only take you so far. And right now, Everton, they're not keeping enough clean sheets, really, to, to make Sean Dyche's football work. Conceding two to Forrest is always going to frustrate them. 
and they haven't got anything at the other end. Damari Gray is ultimately their the best attacker, and he didn't even play in the last game. I mean, he, he got a goal in this one, but only from the penalty spot, wasn't it? It's, I don't know. I just feel like Sean Dyche hasn't worked them out yet, and I, I think it might start to get too late soon. Let's be honest, though. He's not got a great deal of options, has he? No, that is true. And he was dealt, <laughs> he was dealt a very difficult hand in January by the fact that Everton didn't even bother to go for an attacking player. I thought I thought that was bizarre. Their only option was to recall Sims and, and now we, we're seeing more pay playing games. That, as a signing, was ridiculous at the time. We said on here, I couldn't believe that Everton are looking for another goal scorer to cover for Calvert-Lewin and they brought in a striker from a team that never scored goals and now score them freely since he's left. It's such a bizarre player to have in that squad. And actually, I look around now, I think a lot of people have this this idea that Everton might be too good to go down or they've got too many players. They're not at all. It's a dreadful squad. They've got one good player. Well, maybe two if you count Damari Gray. I mean, even Pickford. Pickford's the other one that maybe you could argue. He's just signed a new deal, which I've read doesn't have a relegation clause in. That that seems like a bizarre decision for me. I, I feel like if I was him, I'd be looking for my first way out in the summer. It's... Mm. I don't know. I, I, I'm not. I've not seen anything from Dice to think that Everton are going to stay up now. I'll be totally honest. I mean, for me, uh, I definitely think they'll be looking for more from Anana. I think this game is very quiet. Yeah. Um, you know, as good as a game as he had against Arsenal in that first game, where it was is a revelation. Mm-hmm. You are. They'll definitely be looking for more from him, just to yeah. kind of put a foothold on games, make it like make himself a nuisance and. He's definitely been a bit more quiet the last two or three games, I feel, since kind of having that, you know, that that breakthrough game against Arsenal. I think he's one player who has he's probably got the most ability out of any any player in that in that in that squad. Yeah. Um so they do need something. They need somebody to stand up. You like you mentioned, we've Everton teams of the past, Everton have actually been renowned of being quite structured and having some sort of um, solidity to them, and they are, you know, they're conceding goals at the minute. They're conceding chances. Forest looks the much more likely to go on and win this game yeah, at the yeah. end, even though they went behind, you know, twice. Mm. Um, so that's got to be a concern for them. Worth shouting out a player that you've shown a lot of love to uh, since we started the podcast. On the other side, though, Brennan Johnson. He's sublime, isn't he? I think it was difficult for him to get going in the in the side at the start of the season with so much yeah, uncertainty and change. And even around the manager, they didn't know how long Cooper was going to be there. Now, the two of them look like top-level Premier League talents, don't they? There's talk, loose talk, that if Conte were to leave Spurs in the summer, that we could see Steve Cooper move on there. I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if he didn't try and take Brennan Johnson with him if he went, because he does look a cut above, doesn't he? What what do you make of his performance in this game and and the season he's having as a whole? Yeah, the one thing about Brennan Johnson is, and not many players do have it, is that he's he's fearless in the way he attacks his kind of his fullback or obviously the defender. He, he just he's very direct in his running. He runs straight at them. He tries to make them obviously make a mistake. He tries to force them off balance, and that's not something that many there's that not actually that many players in the Premier League that are able to do that dribbling mm. at you know at full pelt. So he's got he's still very raw in my opinion. I still feel as though there's you know there's so much room for improvement, but yeah. the, the the room for 
the potential that he's got is massive. And absolutely, I, I just feel as though as this scene, season's gone on, we have seen a lot more from him. The, the, the end product has started to get a lot better. He's started to provide more goals. Um, and I, I just feel that he's got a good understanding with Gibbs White as well. Those two have got a, yeah. a good a good relationship, it seems, sort of on and off the field. Um, and the de- it's definitely coming to fruition. One thing you've got to say as well, though, Steve Cooper, the way, the way he, he's managed to piece his team together. How many players at the end? Must be 30, nearly. <laughs> I, think, I think it was 31. I think it actually was 31. I mean, uh, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's so ridiculous. Well. It puts the argument of... Graham Potter saying, oh, he can't work with that many players, that many new players. And I'm, I'm sorry, but Steve Cooper come in and the job that he's done, the amount of new players he's had and got them into a system, a way of playing, how well they actually look as a unit now mm. is really impressive. Yeah, absolutely. A quick roundup of a couple of other little games from the Premier League and then and then we'll have to leave you for this week. But worth mentioning that West Ham find themselves in even more trouble just as it looked like they might be turning the corner after their win last weekend. They get four put past them by Brighton, who we've we've sung so much praise for Brighton this year already, Dave. I'm not really sure what more we can add. Matoma gets his sixth goal in 10 Premier League games. McAllister scores from the spot, Premier League's been absolutely a joy for for Brighton this season and they continue in the FA Cup as well so the success of Brighton or the misery of West Ham I don't know which one's higher right now Dave what do you make of these two sides as a whole it's crazy isn't it this league the West Ham going winning obviously 4-0 last week and they've gone now conceded four this week it's ridiculous oh it's you've got a feel for West Ham fans at the minute the the way it's there's it's a roller coaster of emotions but it definitely feels as though something's going to have to come to pass at some point with Moyes. Yeah. Um, they only had three shots all game, two on target. The sad uh, thing is, I think it's. I think we might have mentioned this already, but it's it's been talked about that one of the reasons West Ham aren't moving on from Moyes is because they just don't feel like there's a better option for them. And every single time it looks like he's he's given himself a bit of comfort and a bit of safety, a result like this comes around. But you, no matter where you are in the league right now as West Ham you shouldn't be losing this game 4-0 should you it just, it just looked like they had no fight it's a bit like United it looked like it was almost they gave up defending at one point but do what do you do is that at the risk of flirting with relegation so you do nothing and just hope that they don't get relegated it's difficult isn't it it's so dangerous Brighton on the other hand what do you think are we going to see Brighton in Europe next season I think it's going to be tight I think it's going to be between them and Fulham potentially um, yeah. But obviously, it you know it bears on a lot around them as well. Um, obviously, Liverpool are massively improving. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tottenham are going to be well up there. Um, so I mean, well, the I think Brighton could catch Spurs quite comfortably. <laughs> and I worry about Newcastle dropping down as well. I mean, they lost at the weekend two 0 to Man City as well. Disappointing for them, but it's a difficult game. But Brighton, I feel like outside of the the traditional six. Brighton are the ones that, to me, look the most certain to, to break into it at the moment, the way that they're playing football. Yeah, I think the, the consistency of the performances is one thing you've got to say, is that they seem to be performing week in, week out. They're consistently creating chances. I think it's a little bit like a yo-yo. It's very up and down of whether they convert their chances. I think we're seeing some some weeks, obviously, the, there was the game against Fulham where they absolutely dominated the game. They created so many chances, but they just weren't able to put them away. But it definitely seems as though more players are actually contributing. You know, more players are getting on the score sheet. Mm. 
Um, you know the 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 rise of Evan Ferguson as well, who looks yeah, ridiculous. You know. All that's left to wonder, really, though, is uh, where Chelsea will end up in the league next season when Deserby's in charge. I suppose at this rate, isn't it? Feels <laughs> like where that's going. A uh, quick mention for my boys as well. Aston Villa got a one 0 win against Crystal Palace, which I'd like to take a lot of credit for. But Joachim Anderson did the hard work for us. Crystal Palace still not won a game this year. Is are they in danger of kind of falling into this relegation conversation as well? I think is it, they've had five draws in the last seven games, though. Yeah, mm, I'd worry about that. Yeah, the I'm thinking they, have, they didn't even have a shot on target in this game either, did they? No, and and I'll be honest, I watched this game and I, I was never worried about Palace. The first, they scored in the first five minutes, obviously, but it was disallowed for a very tight offside. And from that moment on, Villa didn't really have to do that much. They just looked in complete control. At Palace, I worry about them a little bit. I don't think they'll get relegated. I think there are teams worse than Palace, but you never want your season to boil down to the fact that there were just three teams worse than you. You want to survive on your own merit. And actually, Zaha aside, no one's really showing enough in that Palace side right now. The players that we've come to really enjoy watching, like Elise and and Eberigese, I haven't seen anything from those two either. Like Elise went off in this game after about an hour because he just offered nothing. I don't know whether Patrick Vieira is going to start feeling a bit frustrated by this. They they look like they need some major investment in the summer and you never know whether Palace are really going to get that. I think they could be in for a, a, a difficult couple of seasons. Yeah, I, I think I definitely feel like the balance is a bit of an issue as well. Um, I feel like they need, need another midfielder in there. Yeah, um, Definitely seems since Conor Gallagher went, they've definitely lacked something in that midfield area. Um yeah, Samuel Lekonga came in now and I, I, he was really poor in this game. Villa's midfield just absolutely dominated them. Yeah, and like you mentioned, it's it's going to be interesting. I, the thing, the struggle, struggling, just struggling to score goals, that's the main thing. Yeah. And like you mentioned, they have got some really talented players, you know, the likes of Eze and Elise and Zaha as well, who's just come back. Yeah. So they might, they they're going to rely on him massively for goals. Absolutely. He's going to be Quick positive word for my boys, though. It was nice to see Villa getting a win and a clean sheet, particularly at home. It's been difficult to come by, but that's back-to-back wins, back-to-back clean sheets. I just want to say the transition into Emery's football is outstanding. They were so patient with playing the ball out from the back. They always waited for that gap. The biggest worry I have is the best component of that for me is Bubakar Kamara. He's gone off with an injury after a horrible tackle as well. It was so frustrating. Uh, there were two of them in quick succession to lead to the red card. And it's Kamara's had such a stop-start season anyway with that one lengthy injury he had. And just as Villa looked like they've really got going, he's out again. Hopefully it's not for as long this time. We'll wait and see what the what's, result is. What's the, what's the rethink going to be for that then, if, if he's not on the team? Well, Dendonk is injured at the moment. I mean, I don't really rely on Dendonker, but he's injured anyway, so he can't come in. The odds are that either Callum Chambers will come into that midfield. He came off the bench to play in that midfield role. And Emery talked about how he played that role for him at Arsenal a couple of times. He's seen him play that at Fulham. He can do it, but his passing range is nowhere near as good as Kamara's. So then you're relying on Louise to be the distributor instead. Or potentially you can move McGinn back there. But I really don't want to do that because McGinn kind of played in that role at the start of the season when Kamara was injured and was woeful. And in the last two games, he's been man of the match. He was 
amazing again in this game. His passing range is much better. His energy was there again. He looked committed. His dribbling was much sharper like it we used to with John McGinn. Oh. I mean, the ball through to Cash for Villa's goal was just outstanding. Yeah, I was really happy with the performance as, as tight as it was. We didn't offer that much going forward at times, but we were just really committed and dedicated in the middle. We were passing the ball around really well. I think the, real, the real surprise, Ollie Watkins not on the score sheet. I know. I was great. And do you know what? He really, really should have been. He had a glaring miss in the first half where he just got this excellent ball through. He'd made a brilliant run, found himself space, broke into the box and then put it wide of the post. Did he? He'll be kicking. It just clipped the outside of the post, didn't it? I think. Just slightly uh, just clipped. I think even that's generous. I think, it was, e- I think it was easier to get it off target than on target. No, he, he, should have, he should have buried that. He absolutely <laughs> should have buried that. But Villa get the win. I'm happy. Couple of other results. Chelsea won, which was surprising. Southampton beat Leicester. Who knows what's going on with Leicester and Southampton these days? And it was an interesting weekend. But Dave, uh, I want to get off this podcast before seven o'clock because I'm sure that number's giving you nightmares at the moment. <laughs> so uh, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you to everyone for listening to us. We're across all platforms that you can find us on Spotify, Apple. We really appreciate that. If you like what you hear and want to see what our wonderful faces look like or even just fancy digesting some slightly shorter content, head to our YouTube page as well. You can find team-specific videos, tactic breakdowns of the games like you've heard on this podcast, but then you don't necessarily have to listen to Dave run about Man United for too long if you just want to hear about Forest. So we are over there. You can find us on social media as well. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. We're everywhere. I mean, I don't know how TikTok works, but I'm sure Mike's running that behind the scenes somewhere. And until next week... Dave, I appreciate the the fact that you you bore the the burden of being the United on the podcast this week. Thanks for joining me. I'd say a pleasure, but it's not been for the first twenty five minutes. We'll talk again after the Betis game, and then maybe you'll have perked up again. But thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for supporting the channel. Please do subscribe to it in, on any platform you you can, because we're we're really enjoying the growth that we're making. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Football Diary podcast, uh, and we'll speak to you again. 